Jack. Levi. Are we the crazy ones? Hello everyone. This is part two of our Terence McKenna episode, and we're continuing more or less exactly from where we left off. Should we proceed? Let's proceed. Earlier you described the difference between partnership and dominator cultures. How? Oh yeah, should we talk about those a bit more? Yeah, because that's where the book goes on afterwards. So first of all, there were dominator cultures, like say troops of chimps, pre-mushroom. He calls them pre-mushroom societies in the book. Isn't that just They just run around and kill each other. (laughs) They run around and kill each other and don't even speak very well while they're doing it and their visual acuity sucks. So they're not even doing it very well. (laughs) Then they discover mushrooms. They become feminized. They become good at talking to each other. They become empathetic. They have lots of group sex. Cucks running around, not killing each other. (laughs) Yeah, they stop killing each other though because they're they're now mushroom society. That's got to be an evolutionary advantage. Yeah, not they're in communication with the great goddess. And they become partnership societies. They become largely matriarchal, although at the same yeah. time non-hierarchical. Yeah, flat. And they, they worship the great goddess. They are of one planetary vegetable mind. Yes, but they're not, they're not strictly hierarchical in the way that we might think of. Like a chimp troop or something. No, no. Because, well, they've, they've started the process of evolution into higher beings. With the mush, mushroom matrix, essentially. Yeah, yeah. He's, got, he's got a few buzzwords that he likes. The vegetable matrix, the mushroom matrix, the planetary The goddess, the transcendent other. Yeah. Yeah, so having said that, he... Okay, so this. Okay, so let's talk about a bit about this distinction, right? This is this. See, here's the thing, right? This very much resembles the philosophy of Plato, because Plato, he, uh, harkens back in his ideas of the Republic to basically like, uh, the essence or the the ideal form of society was this, you know, like static hierarchical rigid class structure of a society that existed at some point in the past. And that's the platonic ideal of a society, right? So it's this idea, this fundamental idea that there is this perfect way in which a society can exist and it mm-hmm. existed in the past. And the logic therefore is that we should do things to like get back towards that state. It's just, he he's essentially taking a psychedelic spin on Plato's underlying logic. So in a way, <laughs> McKenna is the psychedelic Plato. That's what I got out Interesting. Of it. Interesting. I viewed it slightly differently in that he... I don't think he's, <laughs> he's, he's entirely consistent in his views. So <laughs> what <laughs> he views... So, for example, he views... The Christian idea of us all being sinners and needing saving as, as something from dominator culture, as something very unnatural and something destructive. But 
I can't help but see parallels with that in how he describes the relationship between dominator societies and partnership societies because we were we are fundamentally dominator societies or we incline that way because pre-mushroom societies went in that direction and yeah. without access to the mushroom hmm. we go back to being dominator societies we degrade in a way and that says to me that that mirrors that idea of us all being sinners fundamentally unless we are saved you know, in the context by of the Christianity mushroom. by Jesus Christ in the context of Terence McKenna by getting fried <laughs> yes that's I, interesting that's interesting he's he's less radical than i i think he felt himself to be in that respect i i see it as a yeah interesting interesting that's a that's a good way to think about it what do i think Yeah, it's There's... it is the classic. I see this a lot in like uh, the indigenous context of like okay, like uh, pre-colonial societies were like indigenous Australia. Like pre-colonial societies were like this Garden of Eden or whatever down here in in Australia. No predators, just you know, mob just running around, you know, being peaceful and all this sort of stuff. Or you know whatever, and and everything is just cool, right? So we should go back to those things and those values. Um, but I also see this like there's always this uh, like the good old days, right? Is even make America great again? There's this kind of thing in human mm. psychology of like looking back into like some idealized past and thinking we like right now is bad and we're heading towards the end of the world if we keep this up mm -hmm. moral degradation order even thomas soul as much as i love thomas soul like he makes this i think he makes the same fallacy at times and and therefore we need to like look back to whether it's like the reagan era or like the pre-jfk era or like pre-colonial or like for plato it was like pre-democracy and for terence it's pre it's it's mushroom mushroom partnership society is like the zenith of human achievement and now we need to take mm -hmm. this modern world and like revive that right so mm -hmm. i just i'm never convinced that it really was that good in the past <laughs> no there's almost always a golden age and it's almost never now yeah and it's like are you sure it was that good back then <laughs> I, mean, it's, like really? I sometimes wonder whether people think that today or whichever time they happen to be living in is uniquely bad because you have to live when you live. Right? That The problems now, we don't know how they end and they're much more imminent than problems we read about that were present in, say, the 15th century or whenever. So because yeah. of that immediacy, we think, oh, things have never been this bad. And people always think it's the end of the world. Like, you know, like the Rig Vedas and like the Christian, like apocalyptic Christianity or apocalyptic mm. Islam. Like everybody always thinks it's the end of the world. And it's like, this is why everybody should go and read David Deutsch's The Beginning of Infinity because like, hey, maybe we're not. Maybe this shit can just go on indefinitely into the future. And all we've got to do is like make sure that we live in a society that can solve problems indefinitely into the future and we're not living in the end times. In fact, we might be living, if we're at the beginning of infinity and we're on the edge of infinity, then maybe actually now is the best time to be alive if you're in a country like Australia or whatever. Uh, and the only better time to be alive is tomorrow. 
when we live in peace and harmony with the vegetable intelligence, according to the dictates laid out by Terence McKenna in Food of the Gods. Global cookedness. So, the problem that McKenna lays out, our, so <laughs> our society now is terrible. <laughs> there was a golden age. We're not living in it. We are living in an egocentric, degraded, degrading, so psilocybin-deficient, neurotic, sexually repressed hellscape Capitalist marketing garbage with television fascists brainwashing everyone. Exactly. Which and Jack the reason would why actually we agree here. with, wouldn't you, Jack? <laughs> Jack and I don't Noam with all of it. Jack and Noam Chomsky would both agree with Terence McKenna on this point. <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree with Terence McKenna. There is absolutely no daylight <laughs> between his views and my own. So he he sets the problem out. In this way, I'll read a, I'll read a quote and we can go from there. So, remember, first, dominate a society. We had mushrooms. We had partnership societies, which were good. Then we stopped having mushrooms again because of climate change in the African Eden, which, which meant that humans had to leave. We migrated away because there stopped being as many mushrooms there. He says, in shamanism as a social catalyst that's the name of the chapter i believe that the natural psychedelic compounds acted as feminizing agents that tempered and civilized the egocentric values of the solitary hunter individual with the feminine concern for child rearing and group survival so as we can see when you're in communi in communion with the mushrooms you have these feminine concerns for child-rearing and group survival. It leads to this cooperative society, the Eden. When we lose connection with mushrooms to the transcendent other, we regress to this state of the solitary hunter individual. We regress to dominator values and dominator societies. So much of human history really has been trying to recapture this lost Eden. And he, he really, he regards it as just that. He, he, he thinks of the Garden of Eden story as one of the foundational stories of our culture as an allegory for losing this Eden, these, this wonderful time when we lived in partnership societies on the African savannah where Stropheria cubensis grew abundantly. You could just pick from the ground your ticket to the transcendent other eat it, commune, have group sex, have the best life imaginable. But climate change ruined it and humans migrated from Africa and during the migration were in constant search for something to fill the void left by psychedelic mushrooms. In some places it was successful. So he notes in, in South America and Central America, there are a lot of naturally occurring psychedelic compounds, which explains why everyone there lives in bliss. Because they have access to vegetable intelligence. Because you can go and eat magic mushrooms. You can smoke DMT. You can drink ayahuasca. However, in other places, like in Europe, for example, the reason why the West is so awful <laughs> is because Europeans had alcohol and 
And that, that is the dominator drug. He describes it as the perfect dominator drug. We can get into that. With a cadre shortly. of other dominator drugs, but alcohol being the big dog. The dominator drug. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, I've got some good quotes. Is, um, what do you want to talk about first? Do you want to talk about the difference between dominator and partnership societies in a bit more detail? We can go into... Why the West sucks. We can go into the path out of Eden that humans took, and we can trace the societies that retained partnership values as opposed to dominator values. There are a lot of different directions we can take this in. Well, okay. Quick recap on the dominator thing, right? Mm. Like, essentially, like, just think of all the things that hippies don't like. Okay, hippies don't like the patriarchy, hippies don't like oil, hippies don't like mining, hippies don't like commercial television, hippies don't like uh, neoliberalism, hippies don't like uh, the 80s. <laughs> like, uh, okay, just think of all of these things. Okay, those are all the things that a dominator society is. <laughs> that is your dominator society. Okay. Um, I mean, am I am I being unfair? <laughs> like seriously? <laughs> no. As a as a good heuristic, you can think of dominator society is based on hierarchy and a feeling of powerlessness. If you feel powerless, you seek to accrue power so that you can exert oh, yeah, that power over others and protect this, yourself. He does this like stupid psychoanalyst like that twist. You're like you're acting, you're acting this way to like compensate for this. Uh, neurotic, like unconscious um, deficit that you have. So you seek power because you feel powerless. I think that's mm. a bunch of bullshit. Because like, just take, Putin. <laughs> <laughs> just take Putin for example. I don't think he feels powerless. I think he feels very fucking powerful, and I think he feels perfectly entitled to be powerful. And I think he, he'll he'll fucking kill you and do whatever the fuck he wants because he's powerful and he knows he's powerful. It's not that it's not you don't have to play these like psychoanalytic games. Like some people just like power. Which also brings us on to the other point, which is ego. He brings it back to ego a lot. Mm -hmm. And these are like the drugs like alcohol, caffeine, or whatever, they pump your ego. Cocaine pumps your ego. That's why the eighties, all about cocaine, right? Pump the ego, you get the money, you get the power, you get the women, right? So Mm That's ego. So any of this like ego, high bravado, you know, grabbing by the pussy, that sort of shit, all that dominator culture. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Basically. Mushrooms obliterate your ego. DMT obliterate the ego. Put you in contact with the mushroom matrix feminine goddess. Yeah. Interestingly, he, he talks about dominator cultures as evolutionary dead ends and as end of partnership societies because as the logic being is. the yeah the the only way to evolve which is interesting because at least if you look around today dominator cultures have thoroughly outcompeted partnership Would you societies say if partnership they, societies existed in the first place dominated the partner yeah it's there in the name Jack. so here's the issue right is he proposes that it, and it works from this silly... Again, it's the end times complex. He, he has not escaped the silly, silly, immature end time complex that all these people have. These bloody 
uh, eco-fascists who want to stop us from having oil in our cars, all right, who think that the world is ending. The world's not ending, people. The world is not ending. All right, relax. Okay, so the thing is, he goes, okay, dominated cultures, it leads to nuclear war, it leads to this massive climate catastrophe right that we're going we're always going to we're going to enter this climate catastrophe in like 20 years and we're going to be entering this climate catastrophe in 20 years since the 70s right so clearly this dominator western culture crap is going to lead us into disaster however he's proposing that this inflection point from partnership cultures to dominator cultures uh, and the overthrow of the mushies must have taken place many thousands of years ago, at least ten or fifteen thousand years. So that means this competition and this increasing uh, outcompeting of partnership cultures by dominated cultures has been going on for thousands and thousands of years, and yet they haven't destroyed everything yet. I mean, it could be a function of technology. I mean, we've we've only now hit the point where technology is increasing it. Insufficiently powerful power enough technology. At it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it seems almost an exponential rate of technological increase now. So it might be that we've only just recently reached the point where we really can eliminate all life on Earth, say with nuclear weapons or with, say, how dominator culture is operating, that if things do not change at all, then yeah, there probably is going to be a climate catastrophe. I'm getting into I'm getting into arguing with McKenna. I should be fairly representing and explaining his point of view. I just think that this this dichotomy that he's drawn up is one, it's not even real, and two, it's it's not it's not coherent. It, like we're not living in the end times. Yeah, and for for a number of reasons, I think one, if you're going to follow a purely evolutionary argument, dominated cultures are. Competitively superior to partnership societies. I'm not sure that partnership societies ever existed in the way that he describes them. Maybe in, say, small pre-agricultural bands of humans. Well, like, as far as we can tell, like, I mean, you don't even have to, like, go to pre-agricultural... You could just go to, like, the Amazon or something, you know, especially before, mm. like, too much modern interference, like, from out, from outside, outsiders. Like... Do Amazonian tribes, or did Amazonian tribes until the recent incursion of Westerners into their lives, <laughs> like Terence, mm. <laughs> did they ever have Terence showed up <laughs> and ruined everything? <laughs> um, did did they ever have intertribal conflict whilst they were also taking psychedelics? Like they probably did. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to make any sweeping statements here, but I'm guessing that they occasionally had fights between mm. tribes. And they definitely have access to psychedelic compounds. And they definitely have shamans. Yeah. So for... I, mean, I get, if, if I'm going to be very generous to Terence and his idea that dominator societies are an evolutionary regression and evolutionarily inferior to partnership societies, you could say that the reason why we are living in the end times, if you accept that premise, is because we are following dominator patterns of civilization and if we didn't then we wouldn't be in this case but again that brings up the problem of well dominator cultures dominated the non-dominator cultures okay secondly if you go now some people disagree with the book but if you go and read something like stephen pinker's the better angels of our nature he brings some reasonable evidence for that says actually violence you know death dues to violence things like homicide 
and even deaths due to war have been declining throughout history, especially in countries like like Western countries. And these countries has basically has basically become more like things like democracy and capitalism, you know, all the things that lefties don't like, right? They these things tend towards people not killing one another on the street and in fact are actually very very peaceful societies and in fact there's plenty of evidence that other societies uh at other points in history had very high rates of violence and in particular Mm -hmm. there's one particular form of violence and it's called reactive violence reactive violence as, as as opposed to like uh, I can't remember what the exact term is, but like I suppose like coordinated violence. Reactive violence is just like oh, I get angry at somebody because they push in front of, in front of me in the line, so I punch them in the head or something, you know. And so chimps are really reactively violent. Humans very very low, very very low levels of reactive violence compared to chimps and other other mammals. But even within human societies, like you can measure reactive violence basically by looking at like crime rates. And societies that are like quote unquote more dominator styles tend to have very very low rates of reactive violence. Uh, so, yeah. Well, then that that brings up another problem with dividing dividing all human societies into two types. I mean, there, I think there's a, a greater variety of human experiences than dominator or partnership. I think it's a um. It's it's just it's a it's a higher dimensionality problem than just a or not a. I mean, if you follow Deutsch's and and Dawkins' explanation of human culture, which is essentially fragments of information that can affect an individual organism's an individual human's behavior, then it's it's not even a, it's not even appropriate to approach the idea of culture from an ontological point of, from a from this kind of like let's separate cultures into like these buckets and categorize things like this it's just like we have like in analogous to a gene pool we have a meme pool and we have all these mm. fragments of information that are free to move around as long as communication channels open between groups that information will just move between the groups Mm-hmm. And, and and undergo mimetic evolution inside of the minds of those people. There is no, like, you can't draw a clean distinction between cultures. As soon as two people interface with one another and they start exchanging mm-hmm. information, you've, you've, you have the merging of two cultures. Yeah, and, and it follows a competitive evolutionary process. I mean, memes will compete sort of in the minds of people or with humans as their substrate. La- you know, jokes being the sort of pinnacle example a joke mm-hmm. jokes compete against one another to for the transmission the probability that they'll be transmitted at a dinner party joke x versus joke y joke x being more competitive than y if it's more likely to be told mm. so like mckenna's just entire philosophy is completely vacuous from the ground up to mm. even just like divide the world in, in this way <laughs> Just arbitrarily, <laughs> and of course, it's the pro- and the reason why I'm getting so angry about this, Jack, or upset about this, because he's very, Did very you're much moral. more worked up over McKenna. Than I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm. It's because a hero has been lost for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really liked Terence when he was just a funny-looking man on YouTube saying funny things when I was on acid. That, that, that's Terence. That's Terence to me, and. Reading this book has killed Terence for me. 
I think because for me, yes, Terence initially existed as this strange, high, reedy voice that we would listen to when we took acid or drank mushroom tea. But he's evolved into something greater for me. That the Terence mythos has has evolved. See, the reason why I killed it for me is one because it's a bunch of bullshit, <laughs> <laughs> and, and two because. He's very moralistic. Like he's, it's like he's oh, he's divided, highly moralistic. He's divided human culture, like the complex of all the billions of humans that have existed in all the many variations as individuals and throughout their various collective entities of like the societies and stuff that they've lived in over the course of the last hundreds of thousands of years. He's divided all of that into two, like this bright line down the middle, and. On one side is all the values that he has. <laughs> and on the other side is all the things that he doesn't like. And he labels one of them partnership. Like, who doesn't like a, who doesn't want to be in a partnership society, right? Mm. But then the other one he calls a dominator society, <laughs> a dominator culture. It's like, okay, mate, you're not, you're not really like selling me on this one. <laughs> I'll still listen to him on YouTube, though. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's why I'm getting worked up about this point. I'm sorry about the rant. It's okay. Well, to calm you down, let's discuss the path out of Eden. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so so you've, you've got Eden. You've got... You've got... In Algeria, on the, um, the Tassili Plateau, you have archaeological evidence. And I, I don't really want to use dates when we discuss these things. Not because I am not a famed internet anthropologist, but because he keeps changing the timeline. There are the the time at which some of these events takes varies by thousands of years in McKenna's telling, and I think it'll just confuse things if we try quoting dates because that they, they, they really do differ by thousands of years depending on where in the book you're reading. So you've got rock paintings in Algeria. From the Tassili Nadja Plateau, I like it, the way I pronounce that. It will be yeah, completely. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to help you out. Indecipherable. <laughs> I apologize, but yeah, it's, that's the best you're getting from the late Neolithic. That shows a shaman holding in his fists mushrooms. There are mushrooms growing out of his body, and Terence says regarding these rock paintings that. And the fact that they demonstrate a partnership society predicated upon communion with the matrix of vegetable intelligence through magic mushrooms. He says, the pictorial evidence seems incontrovertible. Incontrovertible. So there you go. So we have established this as a partnership society, a late Neolithic partnership society. And again, when I say late Neolithic, this is late Neolithic plus minus thousands of years because the book is not <laughs> that, that's what makes me a bit suspicious of some of his other historical retellings because oh it, yeah <laughs> he, he 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 does he changes the dates on these things by millennia uh but any, i mean what's anyway, the margin of anyway. error the further you go back in history right like surely you got to give him yeah. some wiggle room like okay so he provides two pictures which we can mm. put in in post-production this is the internet, yeah. 2022, baby. Uh, 
They're actually pretty interesting pictures. I am convinced. I can see the bee face mushroom man. I'll, I, I, I'd be willing to pay. I'd, I'd be willing. I, I, I will be willing to concede. They look like mushrooms. Mm-hmm. They do look. He does look like a mushroom man. Well, let's. I can bring up something here. And he's got it again. It is of uh, extreme importance, which is he's got a big dong as well. Beefy. Here we go. Man, so enormous phallus. For the people watching, I've got some tabs open with pictures of Mushroom Man, and it, it's a bee-faced shaman kind of <laughs> guy with mushrooms growing from his body, a big old dong. Other pictures of one man amorously mounting a woman. So it shows that they had lots of group sex. Um, and, yeah. and some yeah. run- mushroom runners. And this is the one which is harder to pay. Which is harder to give credit for because I don't necessarily like. Are they mushroom runners? They've got funny shaped heads. Can you really say that they're mushroom men? Like, it's not clear to me that they're definitely mushroom men. Well, just what is heads. what is clear to me is that I have a quote from from Food of the Gods written down, which says the pictorial evidence seems incontrovertible. So this is true. I have. Been I don't know refuted. what you're thinking, but. I relying on yeah you've been refuted lord terence terence the shaman says you're wrong so so these these rock paintings are from the so-called roundhead civilization they're called the roundhead civilization because of the pictorial style of round heads in the rock paintings i guess and imagine that's how you you and your people are remembered what, the, the, the mushroom shaman. <laughs> the the, the round headed civilization by Terence. 60,000 60, years, 100,000 years after you live your life, some fucking, fucking cooked Californian is using you to justify his kooky theory on human evolution. Those poor people. Anyway, so in, in, in the chapter called Paradise Found, he he says that this is this is Eden. This is the origin of the Eden myth. This is where humanity was cast from, not for eating the apple of knowledge, which is the mushroom. That is it is clearly that is the mushroom. what the apple of knowledge represents. It were cast out by climate change. The climate change. There weren't as many mushrooms growing, so people left. Because they were where burning they too go? Many fossil fuels. Burning. To- yeah. So, so where did they go? Well, fortunately, we have Terence. He found a missing link culture. And in the chapter called A Missing Link Culture, we find out that from, from where the Roundhead Civilization formerly was, they moved to Palestine. The Natufian culture. Terence notes, suddenly experienced an increase in artistic, cultural, and technological sophistication. Because they were taking more mushrooms. Well, he, he feels it's because this, the, the, that culture came into contact with the roundhead civilization, who brought with them mushrooms. 
They brought with them. So wait, is he saying that the that some part of the human immigration occurred before Garden of Eden? So there were some humans out there already, but they weren't hominid yet. Like they weren't. Well, like, they, they were like proto-humans. It, it, it must have been. Well, they must have been proto-humans living in in Monday Israel, hanging out, not yet really humans. And then these fellas, the roundhead mob, they took mushrooms. Went up the Horn of Africa, and got cooked with the Israel with the with the proto-Israeli proto-hominids. Well, McKenna doesn't he doesn't spell it out. What could have happened? What could have happened is that is that the, the Garden of Eden. Is is more is a corrupted remembrance of the golden age, that so e- e- everyone was taking mushrooms. Some people migrated; they migrated away from this modern Eden, well, this modern Eden from the former Eden, and formed the Natufian civilization. Ah, yes, and but they had forgotten. They, they forgot the mushrooms. Ah, uh, and then they went through a revival. Stayed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they went away, and they went away at the time of some climate change, which stopped the mushrooms growing as abundantly. McKenna thinks that the mushrooms probably were growing because these people had cattle, and the mushrooms grew in the dung of the cattle. And so the roundheads brought the mushrooms back to the Natufians, and that's why they experienced this increase in artistic, cultural, technological sophistication, and probably also had better visual acuity to appreciate it with <laughs> and he says this the most some stoner of- stoner <laughs> theory I've ever heard of anything this takes the cake <laughs> I'm not delivering this in a nasal American accent so it probably doesn't work quite as well it doesn't sound as stoner but but anyway, so the Natufian civilization post-contact with the Roundhead civilization was another partnership paradise. That, that, that was a partnership society. It lived in close communi- communion with plants. It had a strong, ecstatic, shamanic tradition. Then there was Catalhuyuk. <laughs> How would you pronounce it? It's in central yeah, Anatolia. Yeah, give us a go. Um, I'd, I'd, now... I'd, I just had a go. The little, the little squiggly line under the C makes it a s sound, like sava, satal. Okay. And then what's the the double dot over the U do? Ugh. Ugh. I, I don't know. <laughs> Have you seen it? You speak German. You've spoken German. <laughs> you know German people. German. I don't speak German. I'm gonna say satal. Oh yuck. I'm butchering it. I don't know. I don't know any of the languages around that. Look, it's in Anatolia, so maybe it was like a pre... Like, obviously. So maybe maybe it's somehow related to Turkish. I can't speak any Turkish, so I don't know. Anyway, this place is where... It's in central Anatolia, and this is the last great partnership civilization. Why don't we refer to it as... Um, just just like 
How about we pronounce it differently each time and maybe one point we will say it correctly. So, satal like huyuk, katal huyuk. We just... just Satal huyuk. Yeah, it's... um. Let's go for a I assume that search. there's nobody from this civilization alive anymore. Therefore, we can't get in trouble for mispronouncing any of their words. <laughs> it, might, <laughs> it might be named according to conventions of the current occupants. However... In which case, we definitely can mispronounce it. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, you've... This is a um, this is a place which retains the naturalistic spirit of roundhead art, so it must have been influenced by the the people who were cast bulls. out of out of Eden. And the reason why these these partnership civilizations were ultimately undone was because of the fucking proto Indo Europeans from north of the Black Sea. Who came in riding horses. Those are your horses. people, Jack. You fucking dominate. My people with dominator culture. <laughs> and despite dominator culture being evolutionarily inferior to... These bloody Europeans have been oppressing partnership societies. At least since the Upper Paleolithic. <laughs> this, this is a long-standing tradition. <laughs> yeah, I, I apologise on behalf of the, the dominated peoples, the proto-Indo-Europeans, whom I, whom I have a deep connection with. <laughs> so he says, and I quote, I contend that the upper, the quote, Upper Paleolithic ancestor of which we have no trace, end quote, is the culture of the Tassel and Ashar. I can't pronounce it, sorry. The Natufian culture was a transitional culture. So he's trying to make a missing link, link argument. The Natufian culture was a transitional culture directly linking the roundhead culture in Africa to the Satal Huyuk. So there we have those three cultures. And then we have these bloody Indo Europeans. As mm, usual. The horse riders. The horse riders coming in, the alcohol and the dominator culture, and they're gonna sort yep. of trample over the mushroom cultures. Yep. They will in an evolutionarily inferior way outcompete. <laughs> out the mushroom they, cultures. they will set humanity on a course over the ne- over the next ten to twenty thousand years towards Eventually developing nuclear weapons and extracting mm-hmm. energy from the chemical bonds in fossilized plant matter to yeah, destroy well, the it, world. It, it, Somehow, it, the, the, these two are linked. The victory of Dominator civilization has set us on a very dark path. And, I mean, it's... Ultimately, it's for this reason. So... Now, for all of the inventions such as penicillin and lighting at night... Perhaps penicillin is in some way a faint reconnection with the vegetable mind, given that it is from a fungus. This is true. Beta-lactam antibiotics... But despite all of those those things, this is fundamentally dominator culture. 
and it yeah, will end. Dominating the bacteria. Either with a whimper or a scream. The way that we're going right now, it's going to be a horrid scream uh, unless we get mm-hmm. back to the mushies. Exactly. And the fundamental problem is, I quote, without such a visionary relationship to psychedelic extra pheromones that regulate our symbiotic relationship with the plant kingdom, we stand outside of an understanding of planetary purpose. And here's the teleological thing that Jack was talking about earlier. <clears throat> Somehow, the planet, or I don't, I don't know, he says Gaia, or the planet, or like any of the other number of names that people will use to talk of like the Earth goddess or whatever, the mother goddess, uh, that entity has a plan for life on Earth and has had a plan, as far as we can tell, for the last three and a half billion years. But in the last like 10 to 20,000 years has given a little hairless ape some mushies and, and for some reason doesn't want that ape to use nuclear weapons or something. I don't know what happens there. Do we understand what the purpose of the goddess mother is? No, but <laughs> the goddess mother is this thing that you commune with. You are, you are refreshed by the gnosis of the boundary-dissolving plant hallucinogens, the extra pheromones that put you in contact with the transcendent other. I think he needs to take the, the boundary-dissolving thing a little, bit, a little bit more seriously. Mm. to see that there's no boundary between dominator and partnership cultures. This is something that I think Terence's ego has constructed. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past him. He is, he is intensely moralistic. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and he, he goes on to say that the only way that we can recapture this lost Eden and survive as a species, because he, he views us as an existential threat. If we continue down this path, we're going to destroy ourselves. We'll destroy the earth. We'll destroy everything. We, we need a modern shamanism. He says in the chapter Gaian Holism, the next great step towards a planetary holism is the partial merging of the technologically transformed human world with the archaic matrix of vegetable intelligence that is the transcendent other. Yes! Yes! You hear that? Mushroom transhumanism. Despite all of my reservations and my wavering, you I feel are like, convinced. I feel like... Doubting Thomas right now. I am returned. Blessed is he who has seen, but even more blessed is he who has not seen and still believes. We are talking about mushroom, psychedelic, transhumanism. You have won me over, Terry. I'm on board with this. <laughs> we need to iron out a little bit of the, like, a little bit of the, the, the argument so that we can get it past a few more people. But if that's the goal, if this is the goal, I'm down. <laughs> we mean get it past a few people. I think we're doing an admirable job of evangelizing the Terence gospel. It's just, I mean, the pictorial evidence is or seems incontrovertible. <laughs> what, what more do you want? He's, he's being pretty clear here. He is right. He's told us. 
incontrovertible. It's incontrovertible. I do want to get your take on, though, psychedelic mushroom transhumanism. I'd be all for it. If, if we can have some sort of... Some sort of receptacle full of mushrooms jacked directly into our bloodstream, then... You're like neuromancer? I'd be all for that. Except instead of stim packs, it's just psychedelic mushrooms. <laughs> just mushrooms. <laughs> just constant truth. <laughs> he, he, he talks about why the, um, the civilization, the, the Minoan civilization was was really mushroom loving he talks about why <laughs> pre-zoroaster persian civilization was mushroom loving why the the hindu vedas are all peans to soma which is um probably was at one stage magic mushrooms but later became i think based on um harmaline or harmine we can yeah. skip over that stuff it's it's kind of him just offering examples of of why he's correct. It's, it's almost as if he's finding facts that reinforce his existing narrative <laughs> for for hundreds of pages. <laughs> He'll say things like, "Yeah, on the island of Crete, there was no, there's no evidence of war for thousands of years because they were all taking mushrooms and." That's just what happens when you take mushrooms. You have, you have a, a warless society. I'm not an archaeologist, so I, I can't categorically say that that wouldn't be the case, but I find it somewhat hard to okay, believe. Okay, but do you, think, do you think that if you sat the UN down in, in New York, in their little UN studio, the UN building, and you lock the door... The UN studio. And you just put... You just said, you guys aren't coming out until you all take mushrooms. Don't you think the world would be a bit of a better place? Like all those if it were televised, people. it would at least be a more entertaining place. For <laughs> I think they would hash out some stuff. You know, you want peace in the Middle East, sit some people down, you know, get Ben, get BB, get BB and the head of Hamas. Just sit them down, put, give, them, give them a couple of caps and a couple of caps of shrooms. They'll sort it out, man. They'll come to terms. They'll like hug, make up, peace in the Middle East. It'd be sick. I don't think I don't think Bibi is leading Israel anymore. Though he's out. No, he's always leading Israel. <laughs> <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, I, I would strongly support that. I would strongly support putting acid in the water supply. <laughs> Dump vats of it into into all the dams, supplying a city. Just crystals of it, just throw it in. Spike like, the oceans. Like, like Epsom salts, but acid. <laughs> anyway, I mean, yeah, that's that's unequivocally a good idea. How about how about we talk about bad drugs? Because there are bad drugs. Yeah, Not all drugs no. are good. No, not all drugs are good. Alcohol. Alcohol might be the worst drug. Well, wife beaters, right? Whenever somebody beats their wife, whenever somebody beats their wife, they have a can of VB. 
in their hand. Exactly. Exactly. EB in one hand, Siggy in the other hand, and just laying into them. Yeah, well, McKenna says something like "wife beating without alcohol is like a circus without lions." It's um one. one no, he doesn't say something like that. He literally says that. Yes, that was a necessary precondition for, for marital violence. So, he so doesn't alcohol? Like alcohol, it it bump it it pumps your ego. It makes you violent, and. Even though it's a, necessary, it's a social lubricant, it also leads to deteriorations of linguistic abilities and visual acuity. <laughs> yeah, your visual acuity is impaired. So he, 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 he makes this point several times that our search for intoxication, that humans seem to like altered conscious states, is a search for the lost Eden and for the magic mushroom. From the chapter Alcohol... So ever-present search for meaning. <laughs> from, the, from the chapter Alcohol and Honey, he says, Each intoxicant, each effort to recapture the symbiotic balance of the human-mushroom relationship in the lost African Eden is a paler, more distorted image of the original mystery than the last. So, alcohol has some benefits. I mean, it's, it's some attempt to recapture this lost Eden. Yeah. And in some ways, our love of it has a, a silver lining to this very dark cloud because it does show this innate need to get back to the vegetable matrix. But... But... It, it is ultimately harmful. He identifies alcohol as the first highly concentrated purified and purified drug, a synthetic drug, when we distilled it. Okay, we, now this we, is in a sense, point because who distilled it? Well, it was the... Alchemist. Fucking alchemist. Wasn't it right? Yeah. And here's the thing with these bloody alchemists is that they were trying to basic. They had they were operating off the. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Jack. But they were operating off the assumption that there's somehow like some that the spirit is uh, manif is is in the material body, and that was their fundamental flaw. So when they were trying to distill mm-hmm. these these things like these tinctures and stuff that they were making and you know ultimately for the elixir of life they were i guess in a way doing it under a perverted premise so terry doesn't mm-hmm. terry does not like the alchemist no what what they started was this this terrible trend of decontextualizing drugs so before yep. the isolation yeah, yep. of spirits he seems to be you know, of course alcohol is a pale imitation of of magic mushrooms or but like psychedelic mead, experience in general. Like but, alcoholic alcoholic honey, like mead. Yeah, like mead. Really great. Is it, it, it has some link to the natural world, but when you make a synthetic drug, when you isolate the alcohol from that, you, you decontextualize it and you strip its ability to reconnect you with the great goddess. And just making straight up spirits like like um you know like brandy and shit. Yeah. He, he, got, he says, Just as heroin addiction was the malignant flower that sprang from the relatively benign habit of opium use, so distilled alcohol changed the sacred out of the brewer and the vinitor into a profane economic engine for the consumption of human hopes. That's quite a... That's quite a denunciation. Yeah. So... 
And he he extends that logic to all synthetic drugs, except yeah, except does he apply to acid, LSD. No, he's a big fan of LSD, so that's an okay that's an okay synthetic drug. Okay, so Hoffman nailed it with LSD. All the other synthetics, crack cocaine, heroin. So opium, mate, chuff a bit of opium. Relatively You're benign. Okay, relatively benign. Distill opium and inject it. You're out. Mm. Which is interesting because he talks about the opium wars between the British Empire and China as really bad things, which, at least to my understanding, they were terrible. But they're pretty pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, they're terrible. But he he then also says that opium is relatively benign, and you think, well, I mean, you can have one or the other. You can have opium wars were really terrible. No, 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 no. Or opium is relatively benign. The pictorial evidence seems. Incontrovertible, Jack. I see. I, I, I see where you're coming from. <laughs> this is what I mean. He he says a lot of things in this book, and many of them don't work together. He he says a lot of things. It's almost as if he took too. He many took drugs a lot of psychedelics throughout his life, and. <laughs> Didn't really have anybody around him who wanted to like call him out on his on his nonsense. I think a person mm. like this only becomes the person he is, is because he prob he never. I bet you he never ever ever. He was he's always just surrounded by people who agreed with him. Yeah, he was he was probably surrounded by other wake and bake types. Yeah, and he. <laughs> no one pulled and, him aside and said, "All right, Terence, just." Calm it down a bit. <laughs> Mate, come on, man. You you haven't been to work in like three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so so you 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 purify alcohol, you make the first synthetic drug. Yeah. What what does it do? Alcohol is the dominator drug. At moderate doses, it, it increases the libido, which is a good thing. Uh, like magic mushrooms, that could lead to group sex. But the ego feels empowered rather than being dissolved. Yeah. You don't heed social boundaries to the same extent, which, like mushrooms, might be a good thing. You you get the impression of improved verbal fluency. However, that that's an illusion. You become less articulate. Hmm. These things are followed by a narrowing of awareness, the reduced ability to respond to social cues. I'm not sure why he said that because he, he listed it before reduced heating of social boundaries is a really good thing, but hey, it's Terence McKenna. And an infantile regression into loss of sexual performance. It's a quote. It says, you, you become impotent. Me, Mushy McKenna, I'm fucking, yeah. I'm up, I'm hard all night, baby. Yeah, you, Chad Alpha Dog, it, Terrence McKenna. You drink too much. Not body with spirits. Little wife beating, VB drinking, little bitch. You're a little impotent dick. That's what's happening. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. So, but yet still the dominator society and the dominator drug is still the dominant culture on the face of the planet. Yeah. Nonetheless. And it's interesting. So. He analyzes why European civilization in particular accepted alcohol. Because on on the face of it, you would say, well, European civilization is quite puritanical when it comes to altered conscious states. 
And al- alcohol produces an obviously altered conscious state. And one that's bad for society and people get violent, people's visual acuity is diminished and their verbal fluency is substandard. So why is it tolerated? Well, he sees it as... So European civilization is deeply, deeply sexually repressed. And what alcohol does is that it allows the indulging of of restricted sexual activity or the ability to let loose sexually in a way that that doesn't doesn't entail any social responsibility yeah because as we know in our society if you get drunk and do something stupid stupid everyone lets you off for it no one judges you oh you run over a four-year-old and you're drunk no, you're behind the wall. No mate. worries. That's fine. No worries, mate. What are you gonna do? You fucking had a few tinnies, mate. <laughs> yeah, you, you get drunk. Someone sexually harasses someone. In our society, that's cool. It's fine. You drank alcohol. No one's gonna care. You're not getting me too. You're right. Sounds like a good Friday so, night. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> that that is why European civilization has tolerated alcohol and embraced it. Is it, it? It's some sort of escape valve for the pent-up sexual pressures of such a neurotic and sexually repressed society. And I, I would say it, it's just, it's just, it's not reflected. I mean, if, if you get drunk and do something dumb, you get in trouble. It's not, it's, it's not, not a get true. out of jail free card in our society. Not, it's, it's just not true. I don't know true. what he's talking about. It's just not true. So he, he the fundamental issue, sorry, Mm. There's, there's a lot of fundamental issues from this guy's point of view but one of the issues is that he is applying this moralistic um, categorization of alcohol especially distilled alcoholic spirits and stuff in a way that it's almost like it's a pharmacological trait of the drug. <laughs> like these, these social outcomes in much the same way that people like Harry Anslinger, who, who he criticizes later in the book, Harry Anslinger was one of the early drug prohibitionists in the US Mm-hmm. who violently repressed heroin and and people using heroin and, and, and cannabis and, and that sort of thing. Hor- like, horrible guy. Uh, like... Not going to... Nobody's defending Harry Ansling except Jack, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> except me, the staunch drug prohibitionist that I am. Um, however... The logic that Anslinger and modern day equivalents, although there's no real equivalent, but modern day people in who are who are prohibitionists talk about, say, marijuana, marijuana, or talk about cocaine, for example. Let's even take cocaine, like cocaine, as if the negative effects of cocaine are inherent to the drug itself, like. Yet McKenna. And you see this a lot. I, I have seen this a lot in the pro-drug people that I know where they make 
the same moralistic negation of the drugs that they don't like. So if they don't like alcohol, they'll use that same logic against alcohol or caffeine against caffeine. And it's exactly the same. So they're just prohibitionists, but they're prohibitionists in uh, against the drugs that they don't like. So McKenna is not fundamentally like using like consistent yardstick here. He's just saying, I have these moral interpretations of the world and therefore I would like to like legalize and resurrect, like do archaic revival using mushrooms and but get rid of television and, and alcohol. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. What about you mentioned you mentioned cannabis. He's quite a fan of cannabis. Are you um, kidding me, mate? <laughs> Look at him. I, mean, I, I probably don't need to say that. I'm, I'm sure people could infer that he, he likes it. But he, he he really likes it. He um he really likes it. There's a great video of him talking about his one of his tri- his first descent into the Amazon. He talks about it on YouTube, um, and he talks about like taking the mushies before they get to the ayahuasca place. And he talks about taking a massive bomb-ass hit. <laughs> he literally says a bomb-ass <laughs> hit of, of hashish. <laughs> and... <laughs> yeah, he likes it. He likes it a lot. <laughs> so he, he compares it to caffeine. So caffeine he doesn't like much because it reinforces industriousness, competitiveness, wakefulness things that reinforce dominated society, as opposed to cannabis, which he says is totally safe. There is no scientific reason why you would restrict its use, which... Heals your cancer, uh, gets rid of... <laughs> gets rid of fetal alcohol syndrome and... Yeah, which, while I, dick. I think it should be legal, but I also don't think we should pretend that it's good for you. <laughs> it's, it's not. It, get, it but, uh, gets rid of epilepsy. It gets rid, mm. gets rid of cancer. Gets rid of helps with my glaucoma. Gets glaucoma. Gets rid of death. It will stop you from dying. Cures death. Yeah. <laughs> but he he likes it because it undermines these precepts of dominator culture. Now I've got I've got a few quotes where he talks about it. So he says Of all the pandemic plant intoxicants inhabiting the earth. Cannabis is second only to mushrooms in its promotion of the social values and sensory ratios that typified the original partnership societies, and hence why cannabis use is so persecuted, despite it being so incredibly safe. Especially incredibly good. Mm. And then, and then he says, and this is back to my point earlier about the people who make smoking pot into their lifestyle. He is reaching out to these people right now. Because of its subliminally psychedelic effect, cannabis, when pursued as a lifestyle, places a person in intuitive contact with less goal-oriented and less competitive behaviour patterns. Because of this, we should legalise weed. We should free the weed. And I... He's literally just saying... I agree with that quote. I think, yeah, if you you smoke a little bit, turn into a a fucking vegetable. That's just not a good thing. (laughs) If, If you do smoke enough of it, you will not have... As many goals in your life. I've experienced that. that, I've experienced that personally where when I did have a period of time where I was smoking a lot of weed, 
it did affect my goal setting capacities. Fortunately, I never got into weed, so I can't speak from personal Mate. experience. I never found it that. Shut the fuck up, you dominator fun. fucking piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like he, he's saying, like, look, I, I like weed. I like, uh, I reckon you sh- we should at least uh, be having a decriminalization conversation, right? However, <laughs> saying that it makes you like less goal oriented and essentially like less productive is, is like not the best rhetoric for the case of weed. <laughs> It'll make you less competitive, less productive, and less goal oriented. <laughs> but exactly within the paradigm of, of Terence McKenna thought, that's it, those are good things. I feel like there was nothing special about his psychedelic and his marijuana experiences. I feel like he probably just had the same experiences that everybody else did. However, he was just kind of zany enough and morally righteous enough to mm. interpret this as like, this is something the world needs. <laughs> we yeah, need this, is, this should be a lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> he also has this good section on why... So the cannabis plant undermines dominator culture and because everything is so binary in Terence land, that means it reinforces femininity, which does beg the question, does then femininity entail being less goal-oriented and being less motivated? No, 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 no. Um, You're using too <laughs> much logic there, Jack. <laughs> he, he then also points out that this, is, uh, this has a very profound basis it's cannabis's how, how closely tied it is to femininity in that you only care about female cannabis plants because they're the ones that make the psychoactive resin male plants don't do that they're shit and if male plants come into contact with female plants the female plants stop making the resin and start making seeds so it's it's pure femininity you don't. You eliminate the male. That's not. That's not the good bit. You just want the female. It is pure female spirit. I think uh, Terence would like the Scum Manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the issue, right? Is that the the equivocation between our human kind of cultural archetypes, quote unquote, even that entire concept of archetypes is questionable <laughs> he takes a very rigid view of what of what men and women should be or oh, even the existence of archetypes is questionable what even what does it even mean so well, if you're a woman that... smoking weed and taking shrooms <laughs> that's not <laughs> and, and, you can and do. chatting with your girls and having orgies yeah. so like how do I put this? Uh, he's basically saying that that archetype somehow is is biological of origin. It's so yeah. deeply biological in origin that it actually extends all the way to plants. <laughs> so... <laughs> States that they want to undermine gender stereotypes, he really tries his hardest to reinforce them in a, in a fairly a non-traditional deeply, way. But 
<laughs> he does. A very, he does tend to reinforce fairly traditional gender yeah. stereotypes. He's he's inventive with his gender stereotypes and with his he he thinks that. this goes so far back in the evolutionary tree. You have to go back to the to common an, the common ancestor between humans and cannabis plants must have had <laughs> <laughs> therefore a cultural archetype of the feminine and the masculine that conformed and that made the bodies of all the descendants of those two branches of the evolutionary tree conform to that that archetype. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. The three pictorial billion, evidence and a half, seems incontrovertible. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking, how long ago is that? Like two billion years ago, three billion years ago or something? The last common ancestor between plants and animals? <laughs> <laughs> it's deep. It's deep. You can't it's escape it. <laughs> However, we do still need to break down these, the, these gender roles. <laughs> Despite the fact that, on one hand, on Reggie McKenna, you think, well, these are so fundamental and natural and we need to be acting in accordance with nature. But on the other hand, we're told that we need to break them down anyway because that is itself fundamental and natural. It's, it's hard to know what to think sometimes when you read McKenna, but you do know one thing. You do know that you've got to believe. You do know that the pictorial evidence seems incontrovertible. <laughs> He also has this section, do you remember, about how cannabis, of, of course, the, the prime mover of human linguistic evolution <laughs> and narrative mover. evolution was <laughs> Strophaeria cubensis. The, oh, yes. The, the, the foundational cause. magic <laughs> But cannabis probably helped us on the way because... So hemp is... A wonderful material for making cloth. It's so As good. anyone who's taken up marijuana as a lifestyle will tell you within 30 seconds of meeting you, hemp is really special as, as, as a cloth. You might even say that potentially it could have been a competitor to linen or cotton, or its pulp could have been a superior form of paper to standard wood pulp and then in fact yeah. we should be using hemp for everything if we were not for, for some nefarious groups <laughs> suppressing <laughs> oh, we'll get on the to widespread the adoption theories later of, I'm not, i haven't even hemp. approached that bit we'll we'll get there <laughs> more how in english we have metaphors for stories involving cloth and weaving so you weave a story or unravel an incident, oh, spin God. a yarn, stitch together it's an excuse. You lies are from whole cloth. This obviously means that cannabis helped us in our narrative capacity because why else would we have these metaphors if not for the fact that the hemp plant can get us high and can be used to make textiles? I think, yeah. I think this yeah. is true. Yeah. He says, does this shared vocabulary reflect an ancient connection between the intoxicating hemp plant and the intellectual processes that lay behind the discovery <laughs> of the art of weaving and of storytelling? I suggest that such may well be the case. 
And this is this is typical McKenna, where he he phrases that, that oh well I'm 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 being measured here. <laughs> the scales of justice tip in no particular direction. I'm just positing this theory. But then immediately after, he just acts as if it's an established fact. He's incontrovertible evidence. This is how you can tell he has a, a higher education degree, is that <laughs> he, has, he... <laughs> he knows how to make it seem like he doesn't have an opinion. And he knows how to pick and choose his evidence. Mm-hmm. And he writes well enough to make you think that maybe he's making a valid point. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And but in particular, he uses this technique, I suppose. And I don't. He must have picked this up. I feel like he must have done debating in high school or something. <laughs> you, see, you see this this technique of him? Does this shared vocabulary reflect blah blah blah? Like he'll raise this question, like this kind of innocuous question, and he doesn't. Sometimes he like answers it, like even this, he doesn't answer it super strongly. But he's kind of like leading you the reader to like oh well infer that oh yeah like or he doesn't give you like an alternative question to ask it's this very like underhanded rhetorical device that he uses again and again and again and it it gives him this get out of jail free card to not really directly say it (laughs) but he is saying it i was just asking a question (laughs) i was just asking a question (laughs) he's doing a sneaky mckenna anyway so cannabis and hash are really good and uh, a you know, a, an imitation of the the magic mushroom, but still pretty good. Alcohol is terrible and leads to hatred of women. It does beg the question, though. So, say Saudi Arabia, where you can't drink, and has a history of not letting people drink alcohol, but Treats also in the region, very people equitably. smoke hash. And Saudi Arabia is not a beacon of women's rights. I mean, I don't know what you're talking. I think about. they're allowed to drive now, which was hailed as a victory. That's pretty. Sounds like Western dominator culture to me. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe that's the problem. They, they it, it was a paradise for women, but... You Islamophobic Western piece of shit. Exactly. Well, I suppose Islam is monotheistic and McKenna hates monotheism, so maybe that's the problem. Maybe it's just innate to all monotheism. It's you just hate women. Yeah, okay, so does the monotheism and especially it's a it's it's in the judeo-christian family right so Mm. i don't know does he want to are we going to lump them all three of them together and just say this this, i think so i think he only really goes after he goes after christianity which is oh no okay i'm shout out to terry mckenna least anti-semitic mm. person we've done so far Le- yeah actually he never went after jewish not people. not anti-semitic at all not a Which... single moment not a single not a, even in his conspiracy theories never once never came up never came never up. comes up he is even partial to the idea that the holocaust happened yeah. And this might sound like extremely faint praise, but if anyone has listened to any of our previous episodes, every, pretty much everything we've read so far has blamed it's Jews deeply, for something. Deeply, deeply anti-Semitic. I'm not sure. I'm not sure actually if the Unabomber, Unabomber I don't think, I was an anti-Semite. I don't was he think Jewish? he did. No, he was Polish, right? Of yeah, Polish descent. I think he was. But he might have been Jewish. I don't know. Jewish I, descent as well. I don't know, but at least he, he didn't seem anti-Semitic. So he never, there's, he never there's someone else. Up brought up people being Jewish, but 
three out of four so far. So Terence McKenna is on the same level as the Unabomber at this point. In terms of not being an anti-Semite. In terms you're, of not being you're an right, anti-Semite. Actually, that, is, that is something very positive about Terence McKenna that we should acknowledge. Now, one point that Terry has over Ted is that... He didn't murder anyone. I'm glad. He, he didn't murder anyone, nor was he murderous. No. At no point in this book does Terence McKenna advocate... Uh, for the use of child soldiers or nuclear holocaust or stab anybody. Or no, uh, that was something quite argue nice for about the reading. new golden age of piracy. Yeah, it, it, it was nice reading this because he doesn't advocate for genocide. He's not an anti-Semite. He doesn't, he doesn't want to hurt anyone. He, he's, he's very peaceful. He's, he's intensely moralistic, but not violently so. He, so on that level... Shout out to Terry. Shout out to Terry he's for just, not being an anti-Semite. He's just a largely... He's just a zany, hippie with some weird eccentric points of view. And he took a lot of psychedelics throughout his life. <laughs> but he's not, he's not like fundamentally a bad person. He's not hateful. And he's not hateful. And he's not full of like rage and stuff. Mm-hmm. But he, he, I feel like if you met him at a party, he, he'd probably be quite condescending if you ate meat or anything like that. He, he doesn't, I wonder whether he was vegetarian or vegan because he does describe the burnout diet of the, what, of the modern Western man I can only assume as being that he as composed probably, of alcohol, sugar, and red meat. I assume he only ate mushrooms. Only, yeah, he was a microbore. <laughs> while, we're on, while we're on the topic of praising Terence McKenna, I did just come across a quote of his that... I quite liked. Uh, he says, Yet, as a society, we are not ready to discuss the possibility of self-managed addictions and the possibility of intelligently choosing the plants we ally ourselves to. In time, and perhaps out of desperation, this will come. I quite like the idea of trusting people plants. enough to, to manage which plants they choose to take or not. Are you saying that you think that people are essentially sovereign citizens over their own bodies and they should be allowed to enter into political alliances with whichever plants they choose? With whichever plants they choose. I think with certain restrictions. I mean, we probably shouldn't be selling heroin in a 7-Eleven, but it, it should be more. That's, very, that's extremely regressive. You fucking Tory. <laughs> you, you Tory. Tory, I don't believe in selling fentanyl to five-year-olds outside of a primary school. <laughs> Jackie, I from 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 like the vending machine in the, in, in the hallway <laughs> at the school. So yeah, no, no, he's he's. I actually got more angry about Terence than I did about any of the other the other books. <laughs> I found ter- I found this the easiest thing that we've read. But he's definitely the least uh, hateful person. There's not much hate. There, there's not much. Just a bit of content. He does well. I mean, he hates. He hates how the West operates, he and he has that very. West. He has In that very classic, tertiary educated, middle class, Westerner view of how the West is uniquely bad, yeah. in everything, and 
every other culture it's a, it's a is in some Westerner. ways better, particularly those that are less technologically advanced. He, he has this real noble savage. A real noble savage complex. Idea. Yeah. And it, that, that kind of thing, it comes across as extremely condescending and irritating. But as, as far as it goes, as far as the things we have read for this podcast, that, that's okay. I can deal with that. Yeah, I suppose it's better than like racialist, like social Darwinism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so is there anything what were we talking about before we started praising him? I forget, but we can move on to the the West and the problems in the West and why we are at the stage that we are now. Because when he discusses the modern condition, he only discusses the West. It's the yeah. West is terrible because it it sees its dominator values as universal, but then Terence McKenna goes on to pretty much exclusively discuss the modern world in terms of the West. Now, this was published in 92, right? So mm-hmm. there were, um, that, you know, it's not like there weren't other parts of the world that he could have looked at as alternatives yeah. to the West, such as the Soviet Union or Maoist I don't think, or like China, communist China, mm. or like the various like despotic just the, regimes. The rest of the world. The rest of the world. No, not- he he just kind of like just says the West, horrible, dominators, and then there's the shaman, the shamanistic cultures, mm. <laughs> and it, there's Thousands no of years ago. And, and nothing or, else or like or modern modern versions of the shamanistic cultures, and there's there's nothing else. <laughs> there's just the West, yeah. which I assume he basically is thinking the US, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, exactly. Extremely. I mean, as as we all know, in the nineties, East Asia hadn't been invented yet. It just didn't exist. Just popped into existence one day after Terence wrote Food of the Gods. Hence, why so he doesn't even mention it. He does this classical, <clears throat> not classical. This classic like. I would say, like, leftist, in my experience, like, leftist uh, equivocation of the, quote-unquote, the West with everything they don't like in the same way mm. that you could say, like, people just say, like, oh, this, this capitalist, this capitalist, this thing is so capitalist. It's just this, like, stand-in generic term that people use for, like, things that they don't like about the world. And so mm. that could be, like, you know some issue around like oh I don't like this conservative policy or like <clears throat> or like anything any anything like that it's a very generic stand in term for just like things that I don't like and mm-hmm. uh, but it's vitriol directed towards western civilization as such in a very sort of non-specific way um, and it does not account take any it's not it's extremely binary and it doesn't look at any. It, it it makes no concessions. There's nothing good about like. There's nothing. Nothing good out of the West. Not man flight. Man flight like humans flying. No, not good. Like electricity, electromagnetism. No, not good. Like modern biomedical medicines. No, not good. Like none of this. None of it's good. Like the ability to peacefully remove. Uh, rulers from power without having to go through a violent revolution? No, not good. So the West is just mm-hmm. bad. It's dominator. It just blows people up and creates nukes, and that's it. Yeah, which 
It, it, it's very, it's a very navel gazing view of the world because it, it's it's mostly university educated whites talking about why the world is so bad because uni- because white people or the West have ruined everything. But when people like that talk in that way, I often get the feeling that they seem to only ascribe free will to white people. Like everything else in the world is passive and exists to be acted upon by. By the whites West, living in Western countries, by wealthy, and not even whites in general. It's, it's inevitably by upper middle class whites and and yeah, yeah, upper class and the political class and the and the business and not not the small mm. business class, the corporate like multinational class. There's these mm. nefarious classes or strata even within Western or white culture that they have all the power and all the capacity to do whatever they want and just rape and pillage and dominate the rest of the world. And uh, and if any other person from any other cultural background or any other quote unquote class does anything, step outside the boundary. Say, for example, an African person starting a business and becoming wealthy <laughs> it is it is that is that's like not even considered, and it could even or if it is considered, it's like seen as like some sort of like fall from grace. Quiet acting white or whatever and it's like what is this like horrible zero-sum like uh combative uh view of the world it's so simplistic it's so juvenile yeah and unfortunately lord terence does fall into that trap quite often when i say fall into the trap he he embraces it to the fullest yeah other than other than that one issue, the, pretty much the rest of the text is perfect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's our only I mean, concern. Is, it's an unimpeachable text. These are these are little quibbles around the margins. <laughs> is there much else to say about the Western thing? He, he basically... Yeah. Just, he's just this typical fucking... It, it's, anyways. <laughs> there, there, there are a number of addictions to drugs. Oh, yeah, and yeah, when yeah, I say yeah, drugs, yeah, yeah, remember, yeah. The, this is drugs in the... Terence McKenna very broad sense that started in the West and then have basically been exported to the rest of the world from yep. the West. Yeah, Because, so it started in, the, in medieval Europe, which was so starved of variety that Including as soon as they came across, yeah, as soon as they came across spices and dyes from other mm. countries, they Out went bananas. And... The and dedicated enormous resources to developing technology for trade so that they could get these things to increase stimulation. So we we in our current life, and I say so you in, say Australia. <laughs> so good. We we live lives of abundant stimuli with immense high definition screens, the internet, we have alcohol, we have colours everywhere, we have Food with spices. We have Reddit. Things like that. And this, this level of stimulation is like a drug. And taking it away is almost like withdrawing from a drug. It's painful. And so this was the situation that medieval Europe was in. So as soon as they had some sort of... Some, something that could stimulate them, they went bananas for it. So they were deprived. They were, they were deprived. So they just had, and, like, bags, but like cloth bags as clothing everything was grayscale as in literally mm. everything was grayscale 
And then mm. when dyes from India entered into the landmass of Europe, it was like that scene in, uh, what was it, Alice in Wonderland, where like it becomes <laughs> Technicolor. <laughs> that was spice from spice and dyes from India entering Europe. And all the Europeans saw colour f- for the first time. Yeah. Now he's got this quote from the chapter called Into Sugar. <laughs> Which is a Yeah, a harmless habit. Benign. he says our present global trading system was created to cater to people's inherent need for variety and stimulation. It did this with a single-minded intensity that brooked no interference from the church or the state. Neither moral scruples nor physical barriers were able to stand in its way. So, deprived of stimulation, medieval Europe went all in on trying to get stimulation, hence the technological advancement. One of, one of, one of the things that was most harmful is, is when they... They discovered sugar. And Terence regards sugar as maybe second to alcohol, the worst drug. He ties sugar tightly to slavery. He says much slavery existed to get sugar. And I'm not I'm not gonna dispute that. That's a uh, <laughs> that's that's true. Terence McKenna said it. That doesn't make it untrue. No, 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 he does. Look, Terence does say stuff that is factually true at times. <laughs> he does. He does hit on factual truth. Whether or not, again, whether or not that inherently kind of instills within sugar some sort of moral valence now that we don't, don't get our sugar <laughs> from slavery, I don't is think a different yeah, that, issue. That doesn't morally valence sugar. But he, like he in says, de- into the indefinite future, now that the original history of sugar mm-hmm. was, was yeah. slavery. He talks about sugar addicts and he says, after alcohol and tobacco, sugar is the most damaging addictive substance consumed by human beings. And yeah, the, the, the level of sugar in our diets today, at least in the West, is one of the major factors driving the very, very high levels of obesity and type 2 diabetes. It is... In the quantities that most people yeah, 100%. consume, damaging to your health. It's, it's he makes a good point here. Good point. Again, he, he makes he make. Uh, there's a part around the end of the book where he he makes like, I mean, most of you just read it like, okay, fair enough, like whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like sugar sucks. Yeah, sugar's bad for you. Yeah, or like too much. At least too much sugar is bad for you. Yeah. He 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 says that you you don't get anything from it that you can't get from other sources. That we survived before eating refined sucrose from sugarcane it's sure, true but he you says, could say that you could say that about any class of nutrient you could say that about anything you could say oh well we don't we we don't need farm red meat mm-hmm. we could get the same protein from soybeans or whatever it is like pick mm-hmm. your food you can be like you can substitute it with a different food so why should you eat it yeah yeah i i agree i think sugar has a very sordid history and the way it's consumed today is damaging to your health, but the yeah the argument that you can get anything it's an absolute, from sugar elsewhere could be applied to pretty much any food, and it's absolutely except magic well. mushrooms. <laughs> As this book has laid out incontrovertibly, yeah, and and so now the drugs that we are 
consuming in society. He also talks about caffeine, so tea and coffee being industrial and being dominated used drugs. As drugs of opium and sugar and alcohol. These industrial dominated drugs. He says. The stage is then set for the evolution of a human self-image that is entirely disensouled, adrift in a dead universe devoid of meaning and without moral compass. Organic cosmos is rendered meaningless. This process of deepening cultural psychosis, an obsession with ego, money, and the sugar-slash-alcohol drug complex, reaches its culmination in the mid-20th century with Sartre's appalling assertion that nature is mute. He then goes on to say, Nature is not mute, but modern man is deaf. Made deaf because he is unwilling to hear the message of caring balance and cooperation that is nature's message. So, we are, we are, we are fundamentally trying to recapture the communion with nature that we got from magic mushrooms through drug use. But now we are using sugar and alcohol. So, we're... We're really in trouble. That, that is why the world is so terrible now, that we are disensold adrift, unconnected to vegetable gnosis. Checks out. No? Checks out. Sounds good. And then it gets worse. I mean, things get worse from there. So, as you remember from him talking about alcohol, how, say, mead from fermenting honey was good because it has some connection to, to nature and to the transcendent other. But as soon as you distill the alcohol, then you've, you've removed it from that context. We've done the same with opium, that relatively benign habit of taking opium, with, with two things, with the isolation from opium of morphine. So we made a synthetic hard drug from it. And then the invention of the hypodermic syringe. We made morphine and then that became heroin. This super addictive hard drug, disinsold, removed from the vegetable matrix, from the relation to nature. And removed from the social context of like why you would use it. Yeah, and we and we did the same thing with cocaine. So there, were, there there's the coca plant that is used as a stimulant. And you can see the synthetic the modern synthesis and isolation regime of like modern pharmacology is a direct derivative historical extrapolation of the alchemist right distilling the spirits and stripping these drugs of like their social context and of the enveloping like like plant matter yeah and then he ascribes to them a new context he says of heroin here, heroin is the perfect drug for anyone who has been damaged by lack of self-esteem or traumatized by historic upheaval. It is a drug of battlefields, concentration camps, cancer wards, prisons and ghettos. It is the drug of the resigned and the dissolute, the surely dying and the victims unwilling or unable yeah, to fight back. It's a historicist argument. Yeah. Which is not It's like it's an interesting point. Like uh like like a lot of people uh, how like let's get the correct causal like relationship here and look i'm not i'm not a public health expert so what i say right next is like obviously dubious but yeah okay i don't necessarily know if it's the case that 
a lot of people who are traumatized do use whatever self-medicating drugs such as heroin however a lot of people who use things like heroin or whatever drug pick your drug of addiction uh a lot of people who use those drugs have got trauma so uh and they're like they're self-medicating at least that's that's some that's some non-trivial proportion of people doing that so that's an interesting point that he makes that point, that point is not without merit. I think there is something to the, the oblivion offered by opioids that would appeal to someone yeah. who's trying to and, escape trauma. And pro- probably also like ice, I think. Yeah, probably. Probably yeah. to... I, I mean, maybe maybe to some degree. But then again, like, why doesn't he use that same, uh, like, thinking with alcohol? Like, I, I think a lot of people who drink a lot are drinking to, like, self-medicate. Um, so... Like in the experience of the people mm-hmm. who I've met who have got alcoholism problems, like they seem like they're medicating themselves. So um, I don't know. Like he has this kind of um, in so point well taken. However, he doesn't like think, hey, maybe this applies to alcohol as well, or like whatever. Yeah, I guess maybe he he discusses these things with respect to what he regards as hard drugs or yeah isolated drugs so may, maybe it could be applied to alcohol as well if it's distilled alcohol you do then wonder though like would it would it apply to an alcoholic drinking wine say which is not a distilled spirit or do they have to be doing shot shots of vodka yeah well this is why even that that param- that 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 demarcation between synthetic and non-synthetic or natural and unnatural or whatever like and it's not just McKenna who makes this who makes this line in the sand like other people who are in in in, in like the drug reform scene I've, I've heard it made plenty of times and at least to me like it's, it's a it's a non sequitur it's a, it's like it's beside mm-hmm. the point <laughs> whether or not you happen to have it uh, you know like yeah. in the context of, of like the fiber and the cellulose and the other chemicals of like the plant matter or if you extract the active ingredient <laughs> like mm-hmm. what about what about the the newest drug and or the, at least when he was oh, writing well television that's clearly no you <laughs> i'm talking about the bad one he he mentions mdma sort of offhandedly which I was surprised by. I would have thought MDMA would really. Yeah, I don't know how big it was like back it. then. Although that was in the nineties, man. It was popping off in the nineties, man. Apparently, the M- MDMA they had in the nineties in yeah, like he, he definitely Europe would have been aware of it. stuff was like crazy. It's like crazy good. Mm. Yeah, he would have been aware of it for sure. In fact, I'm sure he probably took it. Yeah, he doesn't really talk about it. Mm-hmm. But he he says of television, he he compares. TV to heroin in that the user of TV doesn't care about the outside world very much. They become apathetic and they're only vaguely aware of their addiction. Would, would you say that it reduces your proclivity to set goals? Probably, which would be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> but he says, 
Not unlike drugs or alcohol, the television experience allows the participant to blot out the real world and enter into a pleasurable and passive like, mental state. Like taking and mushrooms. His, one of his major problems is that this is a designer space. But it's a designer space in that it's been designed by... He used examples like people in Madison Avenue, by people yes. in Wall Street, people in the Pentagon, Especially people, people in the White the House. Pentagon. They have designed this mental place for you to reinforce their yeah. agenda and what they want you to think. Capital T, they. Now, this might be the only place that he might be subtly sneaking in some anti-Semitism, but I'll give him the better, better sort of the doubt. <laughs> no, by he, capital he, he T, ne- they, never blamed he does not mean a cabal Jewish of Jewish elders. I think he just means a kind of bureaucr- a bureaucratic they Look, that is non-culturally specific. Culturally non-specific. Mm-hmm. But if there was ever a place, I would be generous. I, I don't there. think. I don't think he's. He could, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean he does. I'm going to be nice to Terence. I don't think. I don't think he's an anti-Semite. In the original manuscript, he put a star of David <laughs> next to it. <laughs> he, he's got this other quote about. Um, so, we're, we're going to get into conspiracy theory land here. Although we've been skirting on its edge land. for the entire podcast, he believes he believes that Western governments, and particularly the intelligence agencies, are they not only tolerate but they participate in the illicit drug trade. So he um, he he says that of say the cocaine and crack cocaine epidemics, he says. Later during the 1960s, the Central Intelligence Agency would use the same technique to smother political dissent in American black ghettos under an avalanche of number four China white, heroin of extraordinary purity. Oh, sorry, discussing heroin. He, he then later blames the CIA for crack. So he, he's saying that the CIA uses addiction to hard drugs to keep certain communities pliable and easily controlled. He says, he also says, involvement in and indeed domination of the world narcotics trade has proven irresistible to groups such as the CIA, Opus Dei, and the French Secret Service. I mean, I'm not sure why a branch of the Catholic Church is involved in international drug smuggling, but there you go. It I, is. I am not going to vouch for the historical accuracy of anything that Terence said or that I'm about to say. However, <laughs> is it has it come to light that the CIA was like meddling with like uh, cocaine stuff in South Central and South America? I don't know, it but it, it wouldn't. I don't know if this is true. I'm not going to say I they did, but it wouldn't though. surprise me. Now, whether or not that is. A systematic issue or that it was endemic or that it was like authorized from mm. uh, a part of, like a reasonably high um, you know ranking part of the CIA such that you could say that like this is it wasn't just like some rogue actors or whatever like you'd have to pick it apart mm-hmm. um, the other stuff about like the government actively fanning social 
decay in, say, Hispanic or Black American communities by facilitating or allowing or actively authorizing the sale of narcotics such as crack cocaine or heroin into those communities. I can't say whether or not that's true. I don't know. Uh, an extreme, an extremely cynical, cynical pers- default perspective is that I wouldn't put it past the US government to have done things like that <laughs> to their own people. No. I don't know if they actually did. Yeah, it's not evidence, but it wouldn't. It wouldn't come so, as a, a huge shock. Yeah, and he, he was really scared of so this huge confluence of events. So you're, you're poisoning certain communities with these hard drugs and then using TV as an electronic drug to control the minds of others, keeping people sick with sugar. He viewed this as a descent to fascism. He's got this nice quote. He says, television... While television, while chemically non-invasive, nevertheless is every bit as addicting and physiologically damaging as any other drug. Yeah. There's this great quote that, sort of, that, that, that sums up this whole command and control drug policy on behalf of the US government, which is, Flattening, editing and simplifying, television did its job and created a post-war American culture of the Ken and Barbie variety. The children of Ken and Barbie briefly broke out of the television intoxication in the mid-60s through the use of hallucinogens. Oops, responded the dominators, and they quickly made psychedelics illegal and halted all research. A double dose of TV therapy plus cocaine was ordered up for the errant hippies, and they were quickly cured and turned into consumption-oriented yuppies. (laughs) Case case closed. (laughs) That's That's a really good one. You can really, you can hear the um, he um, the like, um, how would you say, not venom, but like resentment or something in Mm. in that one. (laughs) Yeah, how about how about we get to what he says we should do? Is there anything else to say about any of the other stuff? Oh, okay, so what, I think we should just read that list. We can we can skip the history of psychedelics. Yeah, he, he then talks about all the different types of psychedelics. He talks about DMT being a portal to connect with and some sort of natural overmind, which I assume to be the transcendent other. Do you, do you want to talk about the modest proposal? Let's talk about, yeah, he's got a section at the end called A Modest Proposal, which is a nine-point plan. To get back, yeah. He's got this this nine-point plan called a modest proposal to get back to a an archaic society or to, to help along the archaic revival. A lot of stuff before this was just kind of trip reports. Pretty fun. So the first point in, in this plan, 200% federal tax on tobacco and alcohol, end tobacco production subsidies, Warnings on tobacco packaging, a 20% tax on sugar and sugar substitutes, and end sugar subsidies. I should also preface all this by saying he's got a a huge amount of wackiness in the rest of the book. And then for his modest proposal, a a lot of it is actually quite reasonable. A lot of his proposals I find quite unobjectionable. 
So that was proposal one. So curb cur- yeah. curb the use of curb so the two. use of sugar. So number two is all forms of cannabis should be yeah. legalized and a two hundred percent federal sales tax imposed on cannabis products. Mm-hmm. So like he he's saying like tax it. Yeah. And, Information and to as have to the THC the content seems which and current conclusions regarding its impact on health should be printed on the packaging. Mm-hmm. To- totally reasonable. Yeah, again I don't I don't dislike yeah, I don't know. Uh the third, third point, IMF and the World Bank to stop lending to countries producing hard drugs. And they have inspections programs, like, say, the nuclear inspection programs to make sure that countries aren't making nuclear weapons. You'll have the same to make sure that they're not making cocaine. It's a little bit interventionist, or isn't it? Or but other, other than that. Hard drug. That's... Yeah, and at the start of, at the, start of the book, he talks about how anyone concerned with freedom would be horrified at the thought of restricting this cornucopia of pharmacological agents Unless it's to synthetic alter the cycle. Cornucopia. But he has his arbitrary lines in the science and Yeah. When 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 you read McKenna Yeah. When when you read McKenna you just have to accept a degree of yeah, arbitrariness, yeah, and, and, and being self conscious Number four is strict Strict gun control must apply to both manufacture and possession. It is the unrestricted availability of firearms that might, has made violent crime and the drug abuse problem so intertwined. I'm against this one. I want to move to yeah, Texas and get myself a gun. So, fuck him. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I I think you should be allowed fully, to own a gun, but I do think you should be. No, nah, none of that. You should have to pass fully background automatic checks. rifles with and no background checks. None of that. <laughs> own my own nuclear <laughs> I'll defend my home by nuking the city if anyone comes near me. Five. All plants are legal to grow and possess. I, yeah. Sure. <laughs> no, no, six. No, no, psychedelic therapy should be made legal and insurance coverage extended to include it. I'm so, so on board with that. I'm so on board. I think, I think that's a totally... I'm on board with that because uh, I... One, I want it myself. <laughs> if if it weren't if it weren't apparent apparent from earlier in the podcast, I do <laughs> like taking psychedelics, so I would also like. <laughs> on board the, with there that. seems to be some emerging <laughs> literature showing the efficacy of psychedelic therapy in certain restricted circumstances, and you know it's early days for the science, so yeah. it might turn out that there are applications of these things that are like really good for for your health and so yeah insurance cover should like insurance should definitely cover a legitimate mm. treatment for like people's issues if it and just because it happens to be psychedelic doesn't mean it should be excluded if it means i can i can vape dmt more easily then i'm on board i think that should be covered by your insurance jack by my insurance <laughs> dmt so you're about to see if seven. medicare will help me out yep seven yeah, so stricter currency and banking regulations. He's particularly concerned that the banks are helping are. fund drug cartels. I think more more generally. Well, they are. They yeah. definitely are. Like, there's yeah. many issues of like Swiss Bank and stuff helping yeah, out I mean, like whatever cartel. And shit. Yeah. They do. Every 30 seconds, Deutsche Bank is pulled up on funding some sort of illicit activity or having money funneled through it. So, yeah, that, that sounds fine. Yeah, I agree. Fair enough. Okay, 
Eight, there is an immediate need for massive support for scientific research into all aspects of substance use and abuse and an equally massive commitment to public education. Again, sounds perfectly reasonable. Yep. I mean, the the just say no didn't work. It it has it never worked. Work. It is it's not working. Stupid. It will not work. We need we need to learn we need to learn to live with addictive substances yeah. rather than try to pretend <laughs> that they don't exist. Next one. One year after implementing steps one to eight, all drugs still illegal in the USA to be decriminalized. And the government will sell drugs at cost plus 200%. The money collected will go towards costs of the legalization program. And additionally, there'll be a pardon for all offenders in drug cases, which didn't include assault or the use of firearms. Yeah, so non- non-violent drug-related crimes should but, be um, essentially like pardoned. Yeah. Again, I'm to- totally on board with that. That sounds perfectly but the, reasonable. But this, this is this is the bit where McKenna really does my head in because the rest of the book, this is in one of the last few pages for, for listeners. This is right at the end. And the rest of the book is pretty wacky. And then he finishes with this little glimmer of well, pretty let, reasonable concrete proposals. It's not hand waving. He's saying he's giving concrete proposals, and I find myself agreeing with most of them, which is a really strange experience. Having not agreed with most yeah, of what I read previously, he has this really wacky, pre like massive two hundred page preamble, three hundred page preamble to like this otherwise <laughs> fairly reasonable list mm. of. And I, I'll read the last paragraph because I think yeah. it's fairly good. So this is after yeah, yeah, please do. Those, 10, those 10 demands. Uh, and I quote, If these proposals seem radical, it is only because we have drifted so far from the ideals that were originally most American. At the foundation of the American theory of social polity is the notion that our inalienable rights include life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To pretend that the right to the pursuit of happiness does not include the right to experiment with psychoactive plants and substances is to make an argument that is at best narrow and at worst ignorant and primitive. The only religions that are anything more than the traditionally sanctioned moral codes are religions of trance, dance, ecstasy and intoxication by hallucinogens. The living fact of the mystery of being is there and it is an inalienable religious right to be able to approach it at on one's own terms. A civilized society would enshrine that principle in law. Nice. And you know what? Like the the like uh, like certain Native American tribes made the religious argument, like religious rights, re- religious freedom argument mm-hmm. to be able to legally use peyote, and they won in the Supreme Court, and they can they do it they do it legally there mm-hmm. in like Arizona and stuff. So he's making it like I don't know, like everything seems fairly reasonable here. If but if you just go back to like the first part of the book, you're like this guy's totally cooked. <laughs> yeah. Then there's also it's questionable whether he he seems to be hailing American liberal democratic values as good things, but then also saying that the West is awful, even though that's where those it's it is. Oh yeah, again, completely completely inconsistent. I don't think there's many. I don't think that there's many like pre, like pre agricultural societies where they had this idea of like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and like property rights, and all these sorts of things, mm. like enshrined in any sort of like codified social institution. Like, <laughs> yeah, 
Probably won't. No. <laughs> Probably won't quoting John Locke. How about I... I can give a quote that I quite liked that he um, he closed the book out on and then we can talk about our impressions, whether we think we're the crazy ones. So he says in the chapter From the Grasslands to the Starship, human history has been a 15,000-year dash from the equilibrium of the African cradle to the 20th century apotheosis of delusion, devastation and mass death. Now we stand on the brink of starflight, virtual reality technologies, and a revivified shamanism that heralds the abandonment of the monkey body and tribal group that has always been our context. The age of the imagination is dawning. Yeah. Are we the crazy ones? I think so. Yeah. Answered. <laughs> so when we ask, are we the crazy ones, we're looking for... What is the author seeing that we're not? And in the case of Terence McKenna, I think we can take that question quite literally. What is he seeing or what did he see that we're not? And clearly he had some trips. Yeah, he saw, saw some, some things on those trips. Yeah, he saw and we stuff. haven't reached that level yet. Some stuff. <laughs> I... not, even, not even in DMT hyperspace have I seen the things that Terence must have seen. My only concern is that I do think that you can take too many psychedelics. I don't know where that line is. <laughs> Terence, but Terence crossed, crossed that line at some point. <laughs> that's a that's a Rubicon he blasted across a long time ago. So Terence, he's a, it's a funny mixture. He he basically has a crazy three hundred page preamble to a fairly reasonable set of proposals for drug reform. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, you that's out, basically for the gods. If you the first 314 pages and you just took that last couple of pages, you could probably like talk to a lot of people and be like, what do you reckon? They're like, oh yeah, that's probably reasonable in 2022. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's got, he's got that a modest proposal section, which is fairly reasonable. But then the the last few pages following that are back to to Terence McKenna weirdness. <laughs> Would you like to read any any more Terence McKenna books after this? No. Are you sure? Because he does have some other books. I'm not no, saying would you like. I'm I, not. I'm not saying would you he's got like a lot of books. To, as if it's something like would you go and do it on your own volition? I'm saying as a part of the show. <laughs> As a part of the show, if if I were convinced that he said something in those books that he doesn't say in Fruit of the Gods, which I'm not convinced he does, then it might it might be worth looking into. But okay, because he has a book where he describes novelty theory. Have you not heard of this? No. <laughs> give me a give me a press. High level overview is basically he extrapolates out the increasing novelty of society into an exponential trend and says we're heading towards this like singularity. <laughs> Of like exponentiating novelty, <laughs> yeah, unpredictable novelty <laughs> that he derives from the from the ancient, okay, the Chinese sacred book of numbers. <laughs> maybe, maybe okay, it will be worth like, returning keep, to Terence. Keep an open mind. Out of out of ten, how convincing did you find this book? We've given we've had some pretty low scores on the podcast so far. I think 
we both gave Varga one or something. Oh, I think Pesada yeah, got two or three. The, the scores up somewhere um, on the website. In my opinion, how convincing. Okay, the thing is that that's the issue with this, the book is I end up agreeing with his last little bit, but I just don't get to his his mm. perspective by the same route. So I give him maybe like a five, I suppose. <laughs> I think of it like a maths exam in high school. You remember how you had to show you working and you got marked mostly on the working <laughs> and not just on writing the right number at the end. And it, it, it is exactly what happens with Food of the Gods. So the answer he offers at the end of this is, uh, I agree with most of it. I find it quite compelling. But he's working the 300 plus pages before that point. It's, it's just, it's like talking to a stoner. It's like talking to someone whose identity is yeah. taking drugs. Well, that is what which McKe- was basically like. It's like, not an unfair accusation to level. No, he, Terence he, McKenna. He, he embraced it. Defined his entire professional identity on that. <laughs> that was it. That was what he did. He was that guy. Yeah. So the, I like the, I like aspects of the answer, and I don't like his working. So I'll give him. I think I agree with you. I think a five is pretty fair. He writes pretty well. And he doesn't. He's, he's a not fine hateful. writer. He clearly went to UC Berkeley. Yeah. He's not boring. He's and he's not, not hateful. Hate, hate. He's not anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. But I do feel as though reading it, like, made me a dumber person. Yes, it certainly has a <laughs> deadening effect. <laughs> I, I didn't feel dirty like I felt when I read Vogue, but yeah. I did feel a bit slower, and a bit higher. So I'll. Oh, I need to give him a bit of credit for not being hateful. I'll give him a six. And not, not advocating for killing anyone, which I don't think anyone we've read. I'll give, yeah, him, a, I'll I'll give him a five and a half. I also like his YouTube videos, so six. I reckon that's good. Go and listen to his YouTube videos. He's funny. Very weak praise for Terence McKenna. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time. Evola? I forget what we're reading. Evola. <laughs> I'll add that in. Or Scum oh, Manifesto. Man. Yeah, we are. We're reading... Are we reading? Are we reading? Are we reading Julius Evola or the Scum Manifesto? Tune in next time to find out.